How's everybody doing? Man, Dave must be doing good. You covered all, you broached all subjects. You talked about doo-doo, um, and you, I mean, you talked about Isaac's mustache. It's fantastic. In fact, D Dave, stand up for a second. Look at me and Dave. How about this right here? We don't plan this, I it, swear to God. We've been trying so hard to not match. It's a pastor uniform. It always happens to us. It's, it's true. I don't know who's dressing like who, but, you know, it's... It happens. Man, I tell you what, I, uh, Easter gathering was amazing. I won't go do a recap of the recap uh, of Easter, but um, it just was a, an amazing testament, like Dave said, to the, the fact that church is a family, that, uh, that you guys are plan A um, for bringing the gospel. God had no other plan but to put the ministry of reconciliation, to put his spirit in you, that you would be the ones that would be running out of these walls, that you'd be doing your jobs, you're doing life, but you'll be doing it in the spirit and that people would uh, come to know you. I can't, I've got some stories that I'm not going to tell right now, but I'll probably, they'll probably find their way into today somehow uh, about people that I've been praying for, for um, 12 to 15 years, people that I've, you know, uh, in this community that um, ended up here on Sunday, not because of me or anything that I said to them, but because of little seeds that individuals in this church planted in their life, and they, it happened over and over and over again, and then next thing you know that they're here, uh, hearing God's word and hearing the gospel. So thank you so much for that. Um, if you got your Bible, uh, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, for those of you that have been around for a, for a long time, maybe some of you have notes from all the way back in 2014, but we have a few teaching rhythms that we have here at Ocean City Church. One uh, we go through uh, books of the Bible. That's probably the most prominent one. We just went through First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, we're pretty systematic about the way that we go through uh, uh, books of the Bible. There's no real series title uh, because we're just like, let's see what God is saying to us, not what we want to say and make the, the text you know, support what we think is good. Um, but we also do series when we feel like God is leading us, when we feel like there's something that God's doing in the life of the church. We'll do that. We'll, we'll have a series. We've had an Ocean of Grace series talking about our vision statement. We've done all kinds of series, uh, an anchor series to, to let us know what it looks like for us to um, not just attend church, but you know, belong to the church, to be family together. Uh, but we also do our Come and Listen series, which I've been told multiple times is one of our favorite uh, here at Ocean City Church. Um, and in 2014, we started. We started in Genesis, and we're looking at the entire landscape of Scripture. We're looking at it from the very beginning, and hopefully we'll get to the end at some point, um, the individual stories of God's faithfulness. But we always zoom out to realize that this story, this book, this text is all about one name. It's all about one story. It's all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's about the fact that he is the one that is the redeemer. He is the one that is the, the savior. He is the one that buys us back. He is the one that brings the rebels home. And that's what this entire story is about. Like the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every page whispers his name. And that really is the essence of the Come and Listen series. And again, we started in 2014 back in Genesis, and we're all the way up to Nehemiah. So I want to catch us up, and I know the people that haven't been around for a while are a little nervous about a three-hour sermon because we're going to start in Genesis, um, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, but a long, long time ago, Genesis chapter 1, God breathed everything into existence, and it was good. And on the sixth day, he made man and he made woman, and they were in perfect relationship with one another until 
Genesis chapter 3, and it says right at the very beginning, and then the serpent. You know that things are going to go south, and the serpent whispers into their ears that they could be their own boss, that they could be their own person, that they could be the captain of their own ship, and they decide, okay, we can be gods. We can be on our own, and they sin and rebel against God. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, two fiery angels at the east end, and now we've got the beginning of the separation of a holy God and very broken and sinful man, and things go downhill from there, so downhill that God tells Noah, the only righteous family that was, that was around at the time, that he needs to build a boat. It takes 120 years, and Noah's family, and two by two, the animals load onto the boat, and God flushes the toilet on the whole dadgum thing. And it, it doesn't get any better after that. You think it's going to be a refresh, a restart, just two chapters later. You've got the Tower of Babel, and again, God scatters everybody all over the planet Earth until we get Abraham, who is the son of a pagan man named Terah, and God says, Abraham, look up in the sky. You see this, the sky? You see the stars in the sky, that is going to be your descendants. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. You're going to be the father of many nations. You've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. There's a whole bunch of things that happen with those 12 sons. But eventually they end up in Egypt. Those 12 sons become 12 tribes, over 2 million people. But the problem, over 400 years, the Egyptians oppressed them, put them into slavery. And then one day, a guy that thinks he's on the edge of retirement or fully retired. And it's kind of in his retirement job. He's tending sheep on the side of a hill. He's 80 years old. His name's Moses. And he sees a burning bush. And God says, hey, Moses. Moses says, I guess I'm on holy ground. I need to take my shoes off. So he does. And God says, you're going to be the instrument in my hands. You're going to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, man, I stutter. I'm not the guy. I'm, I'm retirement age. And God says, don't worry. I will be with you. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Guess what Pharaoh says? He says, I don't want to let the people go. Then there's 10 plagues. And Pharaoh says, uh-oh, I better let the people go. He lets the people go. And then he realizes, man, I don't really want to let the people go. And then he chases the Israelites all the way up to the Red Sea. And then we have the Charlton Heston moment with Moses. He holds up the staff and says, God, please help us. And then the Red Sea is parted. The Israelites make it to the other side, and then the horse and the rider fall into the sea as Miriam sings when they get to the other side. I'm sure it was brutal and not as cute and fuzzy as the felt board that the kids are going to look at today. But we get into the wilderness, and people are out of slavery. They're out of bondage, but they begin to complain and say they want to go back to Egypt. Eventually, they wander in the wilderness for how many years? For 40 years, and then the mantle of leadership is handed from Moses to Joshua. Joshua has been a servant for a long, long time. He's about 60 years old, but he's also like William Wallace from Braveheart, and he goes into the conquest and begins to destroy everything in the promised land so that they could subdue the land. It was very uncomfortable to preach through Joshua. I just want to let you know. And then we get into Judges, where we see the cycle of people's rebellion Walking away from God, and we see God's mercy extended. We see the people repent. We see the people's rebellion. rebellion. We see God's mercy, and then we see the people repent. And it happens over and over and over again. And we have judges that continually call the people back. And the judges themselves make horrible mistakes, Samson and Delilah. And then we move on to this one little ray of shining light, Ruth, where you have this Moabite woman, and everybody thinks that the people of God are just the Israelites. And then all of a sudden, you've got this Moabite woman that finds her way in because of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, engrafted in, in into the line of Christ. It's a beautiful, wonderful, romantic, warm, and fuzzy story, but it's true. And then we move into the people of God, looking around and seeing all of the other kingdoms. And the kingdoms have what? They have kings. And they say, we want a king. And the prophet at the time, Samuel, says, you don't need a king. You have the king of kings. And they said, no, we want a king like they have a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king. So he gives them Saul. Saul was good at first, very good, tall, 
handsome, good-looking, studly guy, and then he hits a skid and goes downhill. And then we've got David, known as the best king of all of Israel. He starts out really, 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 really strong, and then all of a sudden he heads downhill. And then we have what? Who was, who was David's son, the, the smartest, wisest man? Anybody? Solomon, he was really rich. He partied like P. Diddy or Puff Daddy, whoever you want to call him. And he had idiot sons. And he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. He wrote Proverbs trying to tell them, hey, stay away from this girl. Stay away from, you know, girls that drink and, and chew. And, you know, stay away from girls that, that do, right? That's what he's trying to tell them. But they don't. And that's the reason when he gets to the point of handing off the mantle to the next person that's going to be king, there was a disruption. And the kingdom splits. Right? In nine, around 930 BC, you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, you've got Judah, the southern kingdom, and you've got about 40 kings. Pretty much all of them were bad. There was eight, what they say, good kings. I say they were meh, idiom kings. They weren't really that good. So you've got all of these kings, you've got the northern kingdom, you've got the southern kingdom, and then in 722 BC, You've got the Assyrians that come in and they take over the northern kingdom and there's a dispersion. The Israelites are dispersed from the northern kingdom all over the place. And they really never come back from that place. And that's in that 722 B.C. And around 600 B.C., some people say 586, but that's actually when the temple got destroyed. The Babylonians end up bringing the uh, Israelites into Babylon. So the Israelites are now in exile again. The temple is destroyed. You hear stories about Daniel, which we'll get into later in the Come and Listen series. But you've got this series right here where you've got the Babylonian kings. And then finally, Cyrus, by the Spirit of God, he wasn't somebody that followed God, but by the Spirit of God, he says, you know what, we're going to let the people go back. So a remnant. There was four or five million of them, but he was going to let around 50,000 go back to Jerusalem and in and around the, the, the outside country in that particular area. And that's when we were in the book of what? Ezra, right? So you've got Zerubbabel, who was the one that rebuilt the temple. You've got Ezra, the one that would rebuild the community. And now we have Nehemiah, the one that's going to rebuild the... There we go. And that's where we are in the Come and Listen series. All right. Now we have 10 minutes left for <laughs> preaching. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in verse 1, right here in chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, which is around November, December, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital of Babylon, which is about 900 miles away from Jerusalem, just if you're trying to figure out. So Hananiah, one of uh, Nehemiah's brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And he questioned them about the, the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And also about Jerusalem. So his brother comes and says, hey, I just want to tell you what's going down in Jerusalem. He, he hadn't, he'd never really been there. And those who survived the exile back in that province were in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates had been burned with fire. And when he heard these things, this is what happened to Nehemiah. He sat down and wept, not, not for 10 minutes, not for a few hours, but for some days. He mourned and he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Something hit him in, a, in, a, in an extreme way. And I think we have to kind of break down because you think about a wall around a city. It, contextually, we really don't understand that in modern days. We don't, we don't have a wall around Jacksonville, right? It's kind of the opposite. I mean, we just, that's not the way that, that we operate. So to get us kind of in that space, a wall was the mo one of the most important things. When a city was built, you needed a wall. It was the way they, they didn't have security cameras. They didn't have a police force like we have. They didn't have any of the things that we have in the modern day to keep things secure and safe. The wall was 
was paramount. Without it, things would, would deteriorate. I mean, I, I thought about this. I don't know what the status of southern Sudan is now, but I, I read something that back in 2019 that you go into southern Sudan and there's a sign that says, no effective police force here. Now, what are they trying to tell you? They're like, if you want to come in here, great. Just know if you call 911, nobody's coming. So that's the way that people operate in southern Sudan. That's the way when we think about a third world country, something else has taken place. You know, we get to, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the way that we operate as human beings, like we, we are in the, the zone of self-actualization. You know, how do I live a life that makes me feel good? Do I have purpose on planet earth? We're not really thinking about food and shelter. When all of a sudden the walls come down, you go down to the basics. So fear reigns. And when fear reigns, anarchy reigns in a society. Lots of other things reign other than the things that are supposed to reign in your life. You're, you're thinking about how to survive, how to take care. We become extremely selfish when the walls come down and we can't survive. So that was the status they were in. It was a heartbreaking thing to think that his family, that his friends, that the, the culture that he you know, was hoping would be reignited as a result of um, Cyrus and now Artaxerxes allowing things to kind of get back together in Jerusalem and in Israel. So we get, that gives us an idea. Now, there was another breakdown of, of a spiritual wall. If you go back to Ezra and you read how the people operated, they got back there and I think their hope was, okay, we're going to get back to the way things were. The temple's going to get rebuilt. It's going to be amazing. Things are going to be fantastic. And it just wasn't. In fact, it took them, they, they, they put the, laid the foundation and then 16 years later, they finally, finally finished the temple. Do you know why? Because people said, you know what? Temple seems great, but we need to take care we need to build our houses. We need to get comfortable. We need to get into a place where we feel good about us, and then we'll get back to building the temple. And so there was 16 years of frustration. If you go back or even remember the Come and Listen series when we talked about what happened um, in Ezra. Verse 5 says, Then I said, Lord God of heaven. So Nehemiah is praying after he's wept. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Listen to this, just the reverence in his prayer and how he regards God. He says, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you and have not obeyed your commands, decrees and laws you gave your servants. There was a realization for Nehemiah in this moment. And if you remember when we were talking about Ezra, like the culture, uh, the Babylonian culture, this has been, you know, there was 70 years in exile, but it's, it's in terms of at this point, we're now a hundred years of the influence of a completely different culture. And a lot of the people in the surrounding area, the, the, the few people that remained in and around Jerusalem, it completely kind of just dove headlong into Babylonian culture. They said, well, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And they did in every way. And Nehemiah's family was a part of that. Even though they were part of a priestly line, they, they were still kind of Babylonian to the point where they didn't even see living and being pagan and being a part of their rituals, being a part of the things that they did, living the way that they lived, not regarding God. They, it, be, it became normal. They became desensitized in their culture to things that, a hundred years, 200 years before, certainly at the time of Moses when the law was given, wouldn't, would have never happened, but it happened. 
And Nehemiah recognizes that, that the people of God had walked away, that even members of his family, and he even confesses for himself. So he says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if we are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. So he's saying, hey, you did say this was going to happen. But if you return to me, now he's making sure that, that as he's praying, he's quoting the words of God. He's actually pulling something straight out of Deuteronomy. He says, if, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled people, you are in, and are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He remembers God says, hey, if you come back, I will extend mercy. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. As we sang today, you, he is worthy. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he kind of drops this. I was the cupbearer to the king. It's, a, it's almost as a, a journal entry as he's kind of recounting this, this prayer. And he's wanting favor with the king of arguably the most powerful empire, which is now the Persian Empire. Things that, you know, the Persians came in and defeated uh, the Babylonians. And so you've got this completely different um, regime that's in. And Artaxerxes, you can read about him in secular history, is now king. And he was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. So just a few things about Nehemiah as we get into this. He was, as he said, the cupbearer. They were in the capital of Persia, about 900 miles from Jerusalem. He, this was a high position. It wasn't like, when you think about cupbearer, it sounds like, oh, that's, you know, it's like a maid. Uh, no, it's, it was, you had to be trusted to be in the palace at all. Um, that was a process. It wasn't like you go through, you know, some nice telephone training at the call center and then all of a sudden they release you to go do your job. I mean, this is years of building trust to be in the palace and to be somebody that was, you know, drinking the wine to make sure that it was okay for the royal family. I mean, that was his job. He was trusted. He was liked. Um, but he also was comfortable. The dude had a good gig. He was living in the king's palace away from the exiles in Jerusalem. Life was good for him. So that's kind of the, the profile of who he was. So what's this tension that he has to go back? What, what drove Nehemiah to be brokenhearted? Why does he end up being arguably one of the most prolific leaders in Scripture? There's been more leadership books written about Nehemiah than any other figure in the Bible. The dude was a boss. Like what we're going to find out is the guy knew there was things about his character, things about the way that he led people and the way that, I mean, a, a, a contractor, if you will, that actually shows up on time. Um, he was amazing, right? He, there was so many things about him that made him a good leader. And so there's all these books that you can go, just Amazon, look up Nehemiah and leadership books. You're, it's going to flood, you know, a, a search result, you know, return. So he was a great leader. So as we study this, we're going we're gonna to see that he was a boss. We're going to see some of the characteristics of what it means to be an ancient influencer, if you will. But I, I think the, the tension is, the way maybe maybe you're you're in here and you're like that's that's who I am you know I, I kind of I'm a leader this is gonna be good I need I need that that's my my deal I'm kind of a boss I'm trying to you know boss people around you know that's what I do, um, but for the rest of us for the people that are like hey that's not who I am I'm not really in charge of anything and in fact my boss isn't really even a boss he's like I'm this, he's the you know assistant to the manager I mean he's not the the guy right 
and I'm not even good at anything. Maybe, maybe you're, you know, middle school. Maybe you're, you know, just at home with the kids, your housewife. You're like, I, what do, I mean, what does a leadership series have anything to do with me? I don't feel like a leader. You know, I'm in a, in a cubicle, you know, trying to get out of the. It's like I don't even want to climb this corporate ladder. I want to get out of here. You know, what does this have to say to me? You know, what do I, you know, what, what, what is it? What is it that I'm supposed to do? Maybe I'm supposed to lead in the church. Maybe I can't lead in my job. I'm not really a leader there, but, you know, what does it look like for me to lead here? You know, maybe I'll, you know, worship team, man. I can sing. You know, what, what's my leadership position? Don't worry. I know everyone can sing. People have told me. Um, I'm kidding. Some of you cannot. Um, but, but I think we, we think that, like, I've, I've become a believer, I'm a part of the church, I've become an anchor, what's, you know, what's my position, what am I, I going to do next, what's my, what's my job, how am I going to, you know, make, you know, live a life that matters most, like Derek and Dave preach, you know, what, what does it look like for me, you know, how do I, I guess I'm going to take a, a gifts test and find out where I'm gifted, you know, I'm going to go online, there's lots of spiritual gifting tests, and I'm going to find out, you can come to me and just say, I've got the gift of administration, I'm going to take Leslie's job, um, you can do that if you want. But I think we, we, we often think that way. Like, what is, it, what is it that I can do for the kingdom of God? How, how can I lead? I'm not leading in my job. What's my gift? And if I don't, then I feel useless. You know, how do we lead our sphere of influence? I don't even have a sphere of influence. What, you know, what do I have? And I just want to say it's, what we're going to see is it's not all about doing. In fact, it's, it, it's very little about what you do. It's not, you don't do anything. You're going to see Nehemiah be a boss. But it's about rebuilding something inside first and, and what God does. In fact, we, God often turns us back on ourselves to realize when we say things and speak words over ourselves, like, I, I have no influence. I have nothing to bring to the table. You know, I just just read an article about middle school girls and how much influence they have on us, on you. In fact, in 2019, there was 15 words or repositioning of words that were developed, came up with, at least the, what they can find, the root of these words were middle school girls that made it into most legit dictionaries, if not all. 15 words. I mean, they're words that you probably don't use, lit, fam, whatever the words are. They're, they're cultural, but they're there. They're in there. They like re, rewrote snowflakes. Snowflake's a whole different thing. It's like a softy. Like somebody that's saying he's just a snowflake. He's sensitive. You know, there's, I thought a snowflake was like, you know, when somebody mentioned snowflake, I'm, what does that mean? You know, something cold on your skin? You know, I'm old. Like, no, nah, no, nah, snowflake, softy. It's in the dictionary now. And there's that added definition. Thank you, middle school girls, for influencing our entire culture over the last few years. I read an article uh, in the New York Times that's, that they, they did this study trying to find out, you know, in this age of um, people being able to influence with social media, they talked about word of mouth and the real influencing is really just us as humans. And the average American influences and knows 600 people. And they specifically stayed away from people when they did the the study, they, they wanted to go average American. So there was the people that you would know, like the, the housewives, the people that are just in the, the everyday jobs, the doctors, the lawyers, the different people that are working, you know, all throughout the city. The average was 600 people. You are the reason you, who do you think marketers are trying to get a hold of? 
They're trying to get a hold of you because they know that your word of mouth is one of the most powerful marketing machines on the planet. So often our words speak over us something that's not true about us. God, you are image bearers and you're also amplifiers. God, there's a reason in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God said, hey, you're going to be my ambassadors. Yes, you're sinful and broken, but I made you in my image and you can shine big, bright, beautiful lights on everything that you love. And if you love me, then you're going to shine a light on the thing that will rescue the rest of the world. And that's what God is banking on. That's why you are plan A. So first of all, we can't speak those words over us. God can use you in miraculous ways. But as we look at Nehemiah, as we dive in, we see something completely different than what maybe we would see in our culture when it comes to leadership, like how he launches into what he's going to do. Instead of seven habits of highly effective people, we've got three habits of humbly effective humans. And I use the term human because that's what I say to my kids when I correct them or rebuke them about certain things and I'm getting soft and we're at the end of the process and I just say, I just want you to be a good human. Like I, at the end of the day, I've had so many conversations with my boys. Like I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be mean, but I, I, I've been doing the, the life thing a little bit longer and I'm really hoping you'll be a good human. So that's where that comes from. So three habits of humbly effective humans. The first one, surprising. Number one, lament it. Right here, if we jump in and you got your Bible, look at verse three. It says, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. It's the first thing this leader does when he finds out a problem exists. He's got a vision for what needs to happen. He hears the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I mean, the, the overall thing, the whole chapter is a prayer. So just to put these three things in perspective, these habits all really are encapsulated in prayer. First thing Nehemiah does, hits his face, he fasts, and he prays. He's not formulating what he's going to do. He's not figuring out where he's going to get lumber. He's not figuring out who's going to be on his team. He's not figuring out how to, how am I going to influence people? How am I going to, you know, make sure that I encourage them, but also correct them? He's not, you know, looking things up on the internet. He's not trying to figure out what it means to be a good leader. He's not even looking at himself as a leader at this moment. All he's thinking is my heart is broken. I am crushed for my people. And it blows me away because you've got Nehemiah who's got a good gig. He's got a good gig. He's the cupbearer to the king. This is a comfortable job. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I mean, this guy is drinking the best wine on the planet. Most powerful empire in the world. And the dude's tipping back going, hey, it's fantastic. This isn't like Target Box wine. This is good <laughs> wine, y'all. Like the be and he's living in the palace. He's living, he's 900 miles away. Very disconnected, never even been there. So disconnected. And he, he could easily think the way that we think. Look, it's hard to think about things that are so far away. We might cry for a minute when we, when we watch the news, but they didn't even have the news. And here he's broke, his heart is crushed. It's broken. And you see Nehemiah jump in and say, I want my heart to be broken. It was almost as if he knew that he should be 
His heart should be crushed over people that are lost, people that are hurting, the widows, the orphans. Break my heart for what breaks yours, God. Step one, do we care? Do we care about other people? You know, when I became a pastor, I'll tell you, this, didn't, this took me a minute because I, I was in love with Jesus. I absolutely, my life was turned upside down and I wanted people to hear about Jesus. I wanted to leverage and use my gifts for Jesus. I didn't know that I would be going into ministry, um, but I thought, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is what my life's about. Jesus isn't just a, like a thing that you do, no matter what you do, wherever you are, whatever you're, you're into. Colossians 3, you know, whatever you do in word or deed, it's, it's all for him, everything. And I thought that way, all for Jesus. But immediately, I'm a dude. I'm thinking, visionary leader, I like to do things this way. I wanna, here's the things that I'm kind of good at. Here's the things that I'm not so good at. Let's kind of collect all these things and let's go do ministry. And then I ended up in ministry and it was still somewhat that way. And then I realized you'll run out of gas very quickly if you don't have a soft heart. If you are not, you cannot be a pastor and, and, and not be pastoral. Well, he's not pastoral, he's a visionary leader. No, you are, it's about people that God is, that he cares about, that he loves, that he is crying over, that he is brokenhearted over. And step one in being in the mix, being in the flow, being in the river Jesus would be to lament, to be in that place. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter nine, he says the same thing. He's, he's worried about his Jewish brothers and sisters so much so that he's like, I would, I would, trade my salvation. He was so brokenhearted. He said, I would trade my salvation and my relationship with Jesus. He's like, because I, I, want, I want all of my Jewish brothers who don't, don't believe any of this. In fact, they're persecuting me to come to know Jesus. Break my heart for what breaks yours. The wall was down. Why was his heart broken? Why was he crying? Why was he lamenting? Because the spiritual compass was was broken down. I mean, you hear it. Like he's, he's upset that the wall's down because he's thinking, okay, safety's an issue. But he immediately goes to that place of something's happened. He realizes, oh goodness, my family and the people that are there, the culture has, has won out. Culture and comfort was still king. In fact, when you look in Ezra, what does it say? It says the temple was in disarray because they just decided to go build their houses. They just decided to make themselves comfortable. They just decided to do the things that they wanted to do. And Nehemiah realizes things need it. That needs to change. We, th th these people are headed to death and God wants to lead them to life. And he immediately, his brain and his heart, spiritual everything begins to lament. He begins to think about others. He begins to think about others. Philippians 2, not looking to your own interest, but to what? Each of you to the interest of others. It's primary in the kingdom of God. You know, several years ago, I worked at a restaurant and uh, I remember we'd be getting everything ready um, and kind of setting up for the night and different nights were different. And on Wednesday night, I remember it was early on when I uh, started working there. Uh, there's this guy named Justin, super granola, hippie dude. He was awesome, but he, kind of, he, was, he was kind of a boss, but he wasn't the, the boss, wasn't the manager, but he had been there for a while. And he would start this chant, the Christians are coming, the Christians are coming. The Christians are coming, the Christians are coming. 
And it would, everybody would start saying, I'm looking around, going, what's going on? The Christians are coming. And a campus ministry from Florida State would come in there. Um, and he, he said, the, the Christians are coming tonight, and it's not going to be awesome. You're not going to get any tips, and it's going to be awful. And I'm like, that's, that's a shame. And sure enough, they came in, and they were the loudest, most obnoxious. They were the rudest. They would order, like, one cup of coffee and stay for three and a half hours um, on the little porch and open their Bibles and laugh and tell, you know, Christian clean jokes. Um, and it was just, I mean, just, I was just, it was one of those moments where you're like, oh. And it was a bunch of them. You know, it's like 50 or so. And it just absolutely, I was just thinking, this, is, this can't be good for business. You know, if that's your business, like to lead people to Jesus, because the very people that, that needed Jesus, and I, I, I worked at this place for, for three years, were the people that were serving them, were the people in that room. And here comes a whole army of just potential people that could emanate goodness, could tip huge, right? could go, we're going 30%. These people are gonna think we're the best people on the planet. We're, we're, gonna, we're actually gonna clean up after ourselves and still tip them. We're, still, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna do things that, that nobody's ever done for them. Not, hey, can we pray for you, brother? You smell a little bit like weed. Not, not, not we're gonna do that kind of stuff <laughs> for somebody. But think about what they need. Like in their, meet, their, meet the base level needs of, of making them feel good about them being the sweetest to the, to the server, the person that's, that's coming to your table. Having that mindset, actively pursuing others, not thinking, man, I can't believe my food's not out. Hey, can you tell the, this is going back, it's a little bit cold. You know, being the opposite of that. Others, to think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna consider the people that don't know Jesus, and I'm gonna treat them the way, not, not just the way that I wanted to be treated, but better than I would expect to be treated. Because that's what it says, right? Not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. Doing more, going further. You know, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we, we, we stick it in a, in a place of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wedding passage, and it, it should be. It's, a, it's, about, it's about love. But at the essence, what is the Apostle Paul saying? He says, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. Without love, you're nothing. Doesn't matter how, how, what kind of leader you are, how, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a boss, I can do this, I'm, I'm great. It does, he says, doesn't matter. Without, without love. He, he doesn't just say that you're nothing. He says, you're like a gong, you're like a clanging cymbal. You know what he's saying? Without love, guess what? The really good person that thinks they're awesome like Tim Tebow and thinks they're amazing and can do, just tackle the world, you're annoying. You're annoying. That's how harsh the Apostle Paul is in that passage. Like, you're annoying. Without love, if you don't come at this, love is primary. Thinking about other people, being brokenhearted for what's happening outside these walls in a different way of seeing people like they're the project. But seeing those people like, hey, these are, these are human beings. They are created in the image of God. These are my people. We often look at, it's an us and them. It's Christians and non-Christians. No, sinners sinners, some that are anchored to the hope of the universe and others that need to be anchored. Different way to view the world. It's others. I got to move. Got into a zone. 
Secondly, we, we lament it and then we repent it, right? He says, I confess the sins, we Israelites, listen to this, including myself and my father's family have committed against you. We, listen to this language, have acted very wickedly towards you and have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So he laments, he's brokenhearted for a place that he's, that's so far away. And then he confesses and uses, it doesn't say they, Look, I'm so sorry for what they have done. They are so naughty. He says, we. He owns it. And then he says, what? Me. Ownership. You want to be a good leader? You start to own things. It is on you. First, there's no blame game here. There's nothing. He, you talk about being a victim. He could say, we are, we've been exiled by the Babylonians. He doesn't even blame the Babylonians. And they are in exile to the Babylonian empire. And no blame game. Well, the Babylonians says, look what they have done. They destroyed, these people destroyed the temple. And now you've got the Persians have moved in. He could start a list, but he doesn't. He doesn't blame the Babylonians. He doesn't blame President Biden or President Trump, or he doesn't blame COVID. He doesn't blame masks. He doesn't blame anybody. Got quiet in here, didn't it? <laughs> he looks at himself first. He says, he uses language and says, we. He owns it, not just for, for himself. He owns, he owns all of, he owns their sin and his own. We're together. We're in this together. We're, we're a team. When we, when we go down, we all go down. And he confesses for all of them in life. And I'll tell you what, I mean, this is just good advice in general. Own it in your marriage. Look at yourself first. I, I, I tell you right now, I just read an article in psychology today and I'm, I'm gonna move quickly, I promise, but this is pretty good. If you, the, the most in, in business, the most, the, the, there used to be other characteristics like of people that you want to employ and you wanna date. They put them in the same article and I thought this was pretty funny. The, the number one characteristic, it used to be like somebody that's good at stuff. Like, oh, you just want the person that's good at stuff and attractive. Now, you know what's so far above everything else? Humility and ownership. It's at the top of the list. Dating sites, what do you want? I want a guy that can own his stuff, that knows his strengths, but knows his weaknesses, and then knows that he can't know all of his weaknesses, so he has people around him that tell him his weaknesses. Literally on the dating site. Ownership. It will change your life. Being able to look at yourself first, not... Collect all of your stuff and show people your resume and go, look at all the things that I can do. Look at all the people that I know. Come to the table with your weakness and your vulnerability. This guy sure did. And he's, he's arguably the greatest biblical leader in the Bible. It's crazy. And what does he do? Cries. I mean, Dave, come on. <laughs> this is your sermon, Dave. I love it. It's true, though. He's got a, you got a, a guy that fights fires, and he doesn't come up here and talk about how awesome he is, and I was in there and did the smoke. He risks his life. And what does he do? Comes up here and shows vulnerability. He's a Nehemiah. That's why he leads our church. It's powerful what we see in the Scripture, and it's so different than anything else you see in the world. No generational blaming. No blaming the generation before. Like, look at the, look at, or the generation after, like when we were... You know, when we were kids, we played outside, and now we've got these kids that are like, you know? You were the parents to those kids. It's your fault, right? 
There's none of that. He owns it. Says it's me. We got to own this. We got to own the next generation. We got to mentor the next generation. We got to grab hold of it. Repent. Do you lament it? Cry. Be brokenhearted. Be vulnerable. We repent before God. And then, number three, I love this one. Send it. It's the last one. Verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive. This guy's getting ready to go. He's getting ready to go on mission to the prayer of this, your servant, to be the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today, granting him favor in the presence of this man. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. He didn't, I just want you to see this. He didn't ask for anything until after he lamented and repented. So before you send it, you need to lament it and repent it first. I mean, I'm telling you, in, 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 as a visionary that's carrying the gospel, be brokenhearted for the people. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Repent, come, come before God and own it. Own it. Own it as a community. It will change things. You talk about what will be attractive to the world about Ocean City Church is a, a group of people that actually are not arrogant, but own their own stuff, are not blaming the world around. Look at all the bad people. Look what's going on in the schools. I can't believe it. You know, but to own that, to be repentant, change the world. I'm telling you. And he asks, he comes before God. He, he has no problem asking for help. I mean, there's people in this room, myself included, struggle asking people for help. But if you're going to send it, you're going to have to ask people for help. You're going to have to humble yourself before people that are better than you and say, I need your help. He's getting ready to ask the king. He's asking God primarily, which he knows is better than him. Knows he cannot do it without him. Instead of trusting yourself, your skills, your influence, he cries, he surrenders, he shows weakness, he asks for help. And it shows something, just a side note, the guy had leverage with a pagan king. So he, he, wasn't, he wasn't the guy that was just hated. He was crafty and had leverage with a pagan king. He laid groundwork before he was gonna ask Artaxerxes for help. You know, Nehemiah is a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus. Think about this, this guy is getting ready to leave his palace to go be the instrument in God's hands to redeem the people. And look at how it starts. He stands, not just outside of Jerusalem, 900 miles, but he stands outside of Jerusalem and sheds tears, sets his eyes as a flint towards Jerusalem is what it says about Jesus. And here's Nehemiah, eyes towards Jerusalem, crying, brokenhearted. And guess what else? Nehemiah's doing. He's repenting, not just for himself, for all. He's taking the sins of all the people and laying them before God. Now, Nehemiah himself was broken. That's why he's a foreshadowing and he's not a perfect representation of who Jesus is. But Jesus would come and repent on our behalf. He got baptized on your behalf, took all of your sins on your behalf. Sinless. He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God to rebuild the walls of our heart, right? I mean, this is a crazy thing to see this just pressed into the first chapter of Nehemiah. You've already got Jesus coming off the pages. And I don't, I don't know where you are, what you're thinking. If you're feeling, you came in thinking and feeling like you're worthless, unsure about your 
position in life. But we serve a, a risen Savior. who is willing to go to the grave to rebuild and reconstruct everything about who you are. And we might think, you know, what we need is influence, what we need is skill, what we need is to be better at this. I'm not good at anything. I come, I don't even have, well, this is such good news because you might've come in, you're like, man, I'm on the verge of tears. Well, you're ready to be a leader. I'm, I feel broken, I feel sinful, I feel heavy, like I'm not worthy. Well, man, I, I tell you what, it's not doing that's gonna get you there. Some, some lament and some repent might get you there. It's not about who you are. It's about who you know. I remember reading an article about Taylor Swift's best friend. And I loved it. Um, she said, man, you, you uh, I'll quote her. She said, it's better to know somebody than to be somebody. She's like, I get to go to all the stuff. And she has to do all the stuff. That's the God that we serve. He's gonna take you to the places that will change people's lives. But guess what? Just like he said to Moses, who was 80 years old and stuttered. He said, don't worry, I'm gonna be with you. I will be with you. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love your word. God, we, we have our own mindset as to what we think power is, what we think goodness is, what we think skill is. And your upside down kingdom just changes everything. It opens the door for all of us to be a part of your story. Just come Holy Spirit, continue to speak to us.